0: God is sending to us. We are continuing today in our series on people in the Bible. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 18. I want to encourage you to turn there. We'll be there in just a minute. But we're thankful for the people that God's sending to us and, um, and we're able to work with. And we want to introduce to you Kelly, who is there. She is Kelly. Wolf went. We, we sent her out 10 weeks ago to go to Bulgaria. you got to put the emphasis on the right syllable. And she came back from Bulgaria this past week, right? Yes, How did things go?
1: Things were amazing. Um, I wish I was still there.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. Good. This is a good mission trip. Yeah. And um, what are some of the things that you saw God doing in some of the people you worked
1: with? Um, well, just a little background. I worked with an organization called Josiah Venture. So over the summer, um, I was able to work in uh, seven different camps. Uh a wide variety, wilderness, music, sports camps, um, and the goal was to raise up young Josias in Bulgaria, and that's what I saw happen. Um, A lot of faith was deepened and a lot of uh, people came to know the Lord this summer, and it was incredible to witness.
0: And you said in the first service there's not much faith in Bulgaria. The, the predominant faith would probably be communism, yes. socialism, yeah. all over. In the,
1: in the youth population of Bulgaria, less than 1% are believing Christians.
0: Okay. All right. And what, what are some, what's something that God did in you these past 10 weeks that you're thankful for?
1: Um, a word that i had used to describe what the Lord did is uh, he restored me. He took a lot of the places in my life that were broken or needed healing and used the very thing that broke those places uh, to restore my heart and my, my spirit and um, just showed me that in my weaknesses, I'm strong. Um, Paul told that to the Corinthians, and um, it's because it's not about how much I love him, but it's about how much he loves me.
0: That's a good line, isn't it? So we're thankful to have, yeah, go ahead, that's great. We're thankful to have Kelly home. And I want to pray for her and pray for the others that God is raising up who are going to be sent to different mission fields around the world, that God will use us wherever we, we find ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Kelly and using her so well in Bulgaria. And God, we, we just received this good word that it's not about how much we love you, but it's how much you love us. Thank you for Jesus and the complete, perfect expression of your love to us in him. God, as we ponder that as we meditate on your love, sink it deep into our souls. And Father, as uh, Kelly processes the things that she's been through and learned over the past 10 weeks, we want to ask that it'll have the same effect in her that her being there has had on others, that her faith will be deepened, her walk with you will be uh, drawn closer, and God, please be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look in Second Samuel chapter 18. We're continuing in our series on people in the Bible today, and today we're talking about a little fellow named he is. He's one of my favorite guys in the whole Bible. Last week we talked about Abigail, and you'll remember I mentioned when David found out that his son Absalom had started a rebellion, he headed east out of town. He went over, went over the Wasatch Front, headed through the Uintas over there. As he went over the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem, He went through a narrow canyon. There was a guy up on the top of the canyon throwing dirt and curses down on him. And he made it east out of there and landed by the Jordan River that night. And that's very probably where he wrote, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He was refreshed there. And then uh, he, he, he received some messengers and said, You need to head east. You need to get out of here and go across the Jordan River even farther. And so today, after that passage in Second Samuel chapter 16, where he is pelted by Abishai and finds refreshment at the Jordan River, we find ourselves just a few days later in 2 Samuel chapter 18, and we start in verse 1 where it says, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Jeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you, but the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you're worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I'll do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. There are four people I want us to look at this morning in this passage to deal with this passage. The first one is David the king. The second one is Joab the general. The third one is going to be Absalom the rebel. And the fourth one is Ahimeaz, the zealous youth. Do you remember when you were young enough to still have zeal? (laughs) First off, let's look at David the king. Look there in verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David is under a judgment. He's under punishment from God. He has raped Bathsheba had her husband Uriah murdered. And as a result of that, God has said in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And we look at that and go, well, it seems like David got a pass. Why does he get a pass? And the others didn't, and we don't seem to. I tell you what, I wouldn't want the sword never leaving my family. I wouldn't want that as a curse on my family. My kids are, aren't getting along. It still makes me upset. I want them to get along. I don't want a sword in my house. Well, why did, David, why did David get off so easily? There are two sins in the Old Testament there was no forgiveness for. Murder and adultery. Would you like to guess which of those sins David had committed? <laughs> Not looking good. He deserved, under law, he deserved to be put to death, to be executed. But why is it that God said, okay, I'll forgive him? Why is it that God said, now this guy, he's a man after my own heart. Why does he choose David? Let me, let me submit to you that it's because when God went to Adam and said, you ate the fruit? Why in the world did you do that? What did Adam say? It's Not my fault. The woman did. It's the woman that you gave me. Ultimately, it's always God's fault. We'll figure out a way, Right? And when he went to Aaron and who had formed the golden calf and the people were bowing down to the golden calf, he said, what, what in the world? Why did you form this golden calf? What did Aaron say? Oh, it's not my fault. It's those people. And really, I just took the gold. All I did, I just threw it in the fire and outplooped this golden calf. Aren't you glad to know your brother-in-law is not the first one to say something really stupid? <laughs> and when he comes to Saul, King Saul, who's broken the law, disobeyed God and looks at him and says, what are you doing? Saul says, well, it's not my fault. It's all those people. And when he came to David and said, you've committed, you've raped a woman, you've committed murder. What did David say? What did David say? You are right. I did it. It's not somebody else's fault. Against you, Psalm 51, and you only have I sinned. And you know what? that david received forgiveness does not mean he is exempted from consequences how many of you got saved later in life and you're thankful for it but there are still consequences from the lifestyle that you lived before you got saved i know a lot of folks have been delivered from alcohol but cirrhosis of the liver is a real booger and there is forgiveness But there are consequences. And when David is forgiven for the sin that he's committed, that does not mean he's absolved of consequences because the sword will never leave your family. When the prodigal son came home and he comes back to his daddy and says, oh, I want to just make me a servant here. Does his daddy forgive him? Yes, he does. He completely forgives him. Are there consequences? You ever thought about this one? What happens when daddy dies? Who gets everything? Ah, older brother who is not impressed. And friend, that David is forgiven does not mean he got a pass. There are consequences, and the consequences are the sword will never leave your family. And sure enough, it didn't. Son killed son. Baby died. Insurrection was fomented. Concubines and wives are raped by the very son who's trying to humiliate his daddy. It's just like, it's like Jerry Springer gone wild, you know. So. And in our story today as he has passed through that valley on the east side of Jerusalem. And he's he's found refreshment as he's been led by still waters and green grass below him and tables spread for him in the presence of his enemies, that guy pelting him with rocks. And as he's found his cup to overflow, he's resting at the Jordan when he gets word from a messenger who had been sent to him. Absalom is about to attack and destroy you you need to get out of here and so just like George Washington with the Delaware he headed across the Jordan River and David continued heading east until as a warrior as a general he found the very place that the battle should be fought and said this is where it will be fought and David stopped and waited there that's David the king secondly let's look at Joab, the general. Joab means Jehovah is his father. Now that sounds like a really nice name, a real tranquil or a peaceful name. Joab was anything but tranquil and peaceful. He's he's the the general of David's army. He is called the commander of the king's army in First Chronicles 27. He's kind of like Sherman and Storming Norman Schwarzkopf and McMaster's and Patton. All of them rolled into one. This dude is one brutal general. Second Samuel chapter two tells us he's the nephew of David. I wonder if that's how he got his job. His mama punched her brother and said, Look, you've, you've got a gig going on. I want you to put my son to work. Get him out of the house. Go make him quit playing Nintendo all day. <laughs> he had a brother named Abishai. The last week, and the guy up on top of the, valley, the canyon, throwing rocks and curses down on David. One of David's men walked up to him and said, Why is that dead dog allowed to get away with saying those things? Let me go up there and take his head off for him. That's Abishai. That's Joab's brother the one who is jehovah is his father he had another brother we find him and the first time we see joab is in second samuel chapters two and three there's a guy named abner who has led a revolt against david said no saul's son ought to be king not david and so he sides with the son of previous king saul and they lose And Abner has led this rebellion. He's being chased by Joab's other brother, Asahel. And while Asahel is chasing him, Abner says, you better stop. You better stop. And the brother doesn't. And so Abner kills him. Well, Joab didn't appreciate that. And so he arranged for the murder of Abner. That's who we have here. The second time we see him is when David has raped Bathsheba. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's a battle going on. And Joab is the king of the forces. David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, 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 pregnant. Finds that Bathsheba is pregnant. And Uriah refuses to follow David's scheme to make it look like Uriah is really the daddy. And so David says, Uriah's got to be killed. So he sends a message to Joab. Here he is again. He sends a message to Joab, commander of the king's forces, I want him killed. Put him at the front of the forces, withdraw and let him die. So Uriah does just exactly, exactly that. And when it came time to send a messenger to David to tell him the progress of the battle, look there in chapter 11. He tells the messenger in verse 19. When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Look in verse 21. Why did you go so near the wall? If he gets mad at you about this and starts questioning my military tactics, then I want you to say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Just kind of, by the way. You wanted something done, I got it done for you. Joab knows things on David. You do not want Joab on your bad side. Look in verse 25. Here's how calloused, how cavalier David has become toward his sin. Here's his response. Do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. You know, things happen. This guy's going to die. Sometimes that guy dies. Who knows? Yeah, you know you're the one who arranged this thing. That's how cavalier he has become. And Joab knows these things. You don't, want to, you don't want to make Joab mad. A few years later, David replaced him as the commander, and Joab didn't appreciate it. So he went to greet the new commander-in-chief, of the, the commander of the army. And when he did, instead of, when he reached to give him a hug, instead of putting his arm around him, he grabbed him by the beard, pulled him in, and eviscerated, opened, opened his guts, and killed the guy. Face-to-face murder. Maybe he's more like Scarface and Whitey Bulger and the Corleone family, you know, all rolled into one. And today we see in verse 2, look in chapter 18, verse 2. David sent out the army one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. He's been placed in charge of one-third of the army. This is a common practice in the Old Testament, not only for the Jews, but for others. And as the battle progresses, Absalom's forces have been scattered, and he jumps on one of the mules that he stole from the king's corral, and he's heading out, away from the battle, just trying to get away, and he goes under a low-hanging branch, and it catches his head, and the mule keeps on rolling, and Absalom is left hanging from the low branch like a human piñata. One of Joab's soldiers comes to him and tells him, Absalom's hanging over there by his head, and you killed him, didn't you? (laughs) No, I didn't kill him. Absalom's furious, so he takes three spears and goes and kills him. That's how brazen he has become. He thinks he is so indispensable that he can murder the son of the king and have absolutely nothing happen to him. He knows this has been commanded against. Look at verse 5. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And everybody heard it. Everybody heard him give those orders. That's how brazen Joab has become. I can do anything. I'm untouchable. And surely the sword never departs from the house of David. First off, we have David the king. Secondly, we have Joab the general. Now let's look for a minute at Absalom the rebel. Bring us up to date with him on this battle. Absalom is the troubled son. He's the one that's always causing heartache for the king. And now he's trying to steal the throne of David. Steal the kingdom and the throne. He's always been the troubled one. You know, Absalom's sister was raped by a half-brother named Amnon. David forgave Amnon. Absalom did not. In 2 Samuel 13, Absalom arranges for the murder of his half-brother Amnon because the sword will never leave the family. And after he had murdered his brother, he ran off to a foreign country, and Joab and we've just talked about, comes to David and says, you know, you really ought to let him back in town. You you need to let him back in the country. Your response to this is not fair to to Absalom. So David says, okay, he can come to town, but I don't want to see his face. He has no no, uh, audience with me. He's under house arrest and he stays under house arrest for two years. At the end of two years, Absalom is tired of the house arrest, and he sends messengers to Joab. I want to have a talk with you, and Joab won't respond. So Absalom does what all of us would do. Joab's field is next door. He sets it on fire. <laughs> he, got, he got Joab's attention. It says in 2 Samuel fourteen thirty one. Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said, because you wouldn't answer my emails. (laughs) He's granted an audience with the king, but there's treachery afoot. He's there to start a coup, to steal the throne, to steal the kingdom, to have David, his own father, killed. It's more drama than a good episode of The Bachelorette. (laughs) And when the rebellion started, Rather than fighting his own son, David chose to head east, as we've already talked about. Absalom took over the palace, kidnapped the wives and the concubines, and began raping them so as to humiliate his father. How many rebellious children have done what they've done more to humiliate their parents than to really gain their own independence? And it was this rebellion which left Absalom hanging, dangling like a participle from the low branch of that tree where Joab killed him. So we have these three. We have David in the wilderness having sent his armies out to quell a rebellion. We have Joab personally murdering the son of the king. And we have Absalom doing his best impersonation of a porcupine hanging from a tree. And now someone has to get the message to the king. Enter Ahimeaz, the zealous youth. Let's look at him for a minute. You know, in the days before emails and encrypted messages, information was sent between forces and the headquarters by runners. If you were a runner, if you could run in that day, you were a very valuable commodity to an army. I would never have been an ar- a runner for the army because my car works. They would never have allowed... I'm not. If you have the ability to be a long-distance runner, you would have been very prized in that day. It says in 2 Samuel 2, the three sons of Zeruiah were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. That that was a very valuable thing. It was a prestigious job to be a runner. They were called couriers. They were the first runny talkies. See now, <laughs> I thought that was funny. See, it's walkie-talkie, runny-talkie, but anyway. <laughs> they were very valuable to the army, and, and entire systems of couriers had been set up so that information could be spread all over the country, according to 2 Chronicles 30, all over the country in a very short amount of time. And here, one of those runners is this young up-and-coming guy named Ahimeez, whose name means brother of anger. Now, you wonder what was going on in that family. He's the son of Zadok, the priest, and he had been chosen on several occasions to carry messages to David. We've seen him a few times before this. When David was camped on the west side of the Jordan writing Psalm 23, it was Ahimeas who was trusted with the message. If you want to live, you better get out of here. You better cross that river and go. It was Ahimeas and his friend Jonathan. They risked their lives. People came looking for him to kill him, and God protected them, and Ahimeas was trusted to get the message out. So if you absolutely, positively have to have it there overnight, who are you going to entrust your message to? Ahimeas has proven himself. He's risked his life for the king. And now Absalom is dead. Who's going to take it to the king? Look in our passage, 2 Samuel 18, verse 19. It says, Then Ahimeas, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hands of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. If you were a Hemiah, how would you feel? I mean, he's the top runner in the country. He's... He's famous for being a faithful messenger. He's, he's, he has an impeccable resume. He's done his time. He deserves this promotion. He deserves face time with the king. How would you feel if a foreigner, an outsider, is chosen over you? And Ahimeaz might very well have forgotten that two times previous when David got a message that he didn't want to hear, he killed the messenger. <laughs> and Joab is protecting Ahimeaz in a lot of ways. He's not happy having been passed over for this most prestigious promotion. Look there in verse 22. Ahimeas the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? There's your second reason not to run. First off, verse 20, the king's son is dead. You don't want to take that news. Secondly, verse 22, there's no reward in it. Why why would you want to run? We'll see what kind of listener Ahimeas was in just a few minutes. Verse 23, he's not satisfied. Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Nehemiah's ran by the way of the plain and outrun, outran the Cushite. There are some commentators who state that the Cushite, the Egyptian, the African, is mentioned more as a race in the Bible than any other race apart from the Jew. And in, the, in taking this message joab had chosen to use a cushite the cushites did everything in the bible from build the tower of babel to carry the cross of jesus to when philip baptized an ethiopian take the gospel to africa and 300 years later when the church finally arrived they found a thriving church because of that ethiopian eunuch the cushite has a very prominent place in the bible but here this foreigner is taking this very desirable task of delivering a message to david and he is takes exception to it. So he says, I'm running anyway. Well, knock yourself out. Go do it. And he ran the three-minute mile in less than three minutes because he knew a shortcut. Look in verse 24. David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone... There's news in his mouth. See, if you've lost a battle, then people are going to be running every which direction. There's going to be no intentionality about it. But you have one guy heading straight for you with purpose in his his direction. Okay, now we have news. And when a battle was raging in a far-off place, the general would send a runner back to Jerusalem. And those people in town, the watchman, knew to keep an eye out on the hills that surrounded Jerusalem in direction of the battle because there would be a runner coming. And in Isaiah 52, 7... That's what it's talking about when it says, how beautiful are the feet, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, declaring our God reigns. That's what that's talking about. They're watching for that runner to come, and when they get in sight or sound of the, the city, rather than keep everybody in suspense of wait till next week's program to find out what happens next, they just stand on the top of the hill, and at the top of their lungs, they shout, our God reigns. And what that means is, we're one. You know, God delivered and when Ahimeas gets close, he doesn't stop to say anything. But look there in verse 27. The watchman said, I, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeas, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Oh, I know his character. He has something good rather than sending a foreigner. Verse 28. Ahimeas gets there and he cries out, cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimeas answered, when Joab, the king's servant, your servant, I, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And that's the last time we see Ahemias. He's mentioned in a couple of more genealogies, but this young up-and-coming, the one who had so much in his future, the one who had such a good prospect ahead of him, he becomes a one-hit wonder of the Bible and is told, turn aside and stand here. And so he turned aside and stood still, and for all we know, he's still standing there because we never see him again. Someone said, Ahemias reminds us of those bothersome people who want to be important but have nothing much to say. A hundred years ago, a thousand miles away, I was asked to um, MC a birthday party for someone. in A very large building and had a bunch of people come and they've known a lot of folks. And asked me to MC this thing and and they were going to have people say nice things about the person, you know. And so... When it came time for that, I said, okay, does anybody have anything they want to say about so-and-so? And This one guy got up and said, yeah, I'd like to say something. And he took the microphone and he stood there like that, holding the microphone. And it was a long pause. And it's kind of like, you know, the freeze deer in the headlight type thing. And finally he said, I've always wanted to stand in front of a large group of people holding a microphone. And my first thought was, this is going to go badly. <laughs> and it did. In a, in a hurry. He had nothing to say. Had nothing to contribute. It wasn't about honoring the person whose birthday we were there to celebrate. It was about him being seen holding a microphone, and that's a him he is just want to make sure that we're seen. And he allowed his excitement to get the better of his judgment, and as a result, he was set aside with no reward. Because look there in verse 29, what did the king care about? He didn't care about the battle. All he wanted to know is it well with the young man Absalom? That's all he wanted to know. Now. Should Ahimeas have been able to answer that question? Why? Because Joab had already said, you don't want to go today because the king's son is dead. He should have known. Now, there's some who say that he did know and he just lied, didn't want to bring bad news. I don't know. It doesn't say that. But his answer was, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was whether he lied because he didn't want to have to deliver bad news or he just didn't pay any attention when Joab was talking to him we don't know but he was set aside and we don't know why we don't know what was going on in Ahimeaz's mind we don't see that don't know if he was more impressed with importance than he should have been don't know if he allowed excitement to rule rule over wisdom don't know if he just didn't trust Joab didn't trust his wisdom or Joab's desire for Ahimeaz to succeed we don't know but whatever the reason, he set aside because he refused to listen to those God had placed in his life to help him succeed. Can't you just see him standing there? He's just like you were. He's just like your kids are, were, just kind of running in place. But I want to, I want to, I want to. If it will make you shut up, then go. And friends... The reality is that Ahimias was set aside because he did not listen to those God had placed in in his life. And we do the exact same thing. We are set aside. We are ineffective for the work of God's purposes when we determine we know more than everybody else. And friends, here's the simple reality. The vision that God has called you to, the vision that God has called this church to is bigger than any one person, any one church, any one denomination can ever accomplish. It is the advancement of the kingdom, and it will take more than you by yourself, us by ourselves, or any group by themselves. We have to do this as the body of Christ if we want to see the kingdom advanced in this place. God came to Habakkuk and said, listen, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you a vision, and this is a big vision. It's an enormous vision. It's so big that you cannot accomplish it. I want you to write it down and hang it on the wall so that those that see it can run with it. It's bigger than you. Listen to what he said in Habakkuk 2 verse 2. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The vision is bigger than you. That's why You need to write it down so that he that reads it can run with it. It's longer than you, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, and it's more certain than you are. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Our first value here at Risen Life is that we believe that the Bible is God's Word. God gave His Word. He protected His Word and made sure you got a copy of it. We believe that the Bible is God's word. That is our first value. Our second value is that we have to work in team. Everything we do, we strive to work together in team with other people. You cannot accomplish what God's called you to by yourself. How many of us have refused to to think about leading a community group because, oh, I don't want to do that by myself? How many of us have refused to teach a Sunday school class, help out in the children's department, do anything that we've been asked to do because, oh, I could never do that by myself? You're right. (laughs) You're right. That's, that's That's our second value. You cannot do it by yourself. But friends, when we work in team, when we listen to those around us, when we listen to those that God has placed around us for vision, for wisdom, for help, then we can get the work accomplished. Because there are people who are going to see. He's saying, I want you to write, put it on banners and hang it on the wall, because there are going to be people who read that and go, oh, I feel like I'm called to that. That's something that's of interest to me. How many times have we had someone stand up here saying what they're about to do, and you go, wow, that sounds fascinating. And you come up and talk to them. You know why? You, you, so there, there are few who come talk to them because most people say, well, I'm not really called to that. That doesn't do it for me. We get that. But friends, we introduce them because there are some who are called to the same thing. And when they hear that somebody else has the same vision, they hook up with them and say, wow, that's fascinating. I want to do the same thing. How can I help you do that? And together, the job gets done. And friends, when, when we, you know, for 10 years, Kevin and I have been saying, this church hits four to 500 people. We want to take a pile of them and move them somewhere else in the valley and start another church. We don't want to have some monument here to what God's done at Risen Life. We want this thing spread out. God, just build your church all over the valley. Last week, we had 430 people in this building. Isn't that something? And now we're praying, God, what, what are you doing here? Who, 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 where do we need to plant another church? And we're so thankful for the people that God has sent to us. We, we had Brian Catherman on staff here for about five years. And then about three years ago, he came to us and said, I want to plant a church. And so we started working. Good, go find your place. Let's do it. We'll make this thing happen. They found Rose Park. And aren't you thankful that there's a representation of the kingdom of God in Rose Park? It's a long ways over there. Amen? They hung out 56,000 door hangers with gospel tracks in them in the past two years. I hadn't hung out 56,000 anything in the past 50 years. I can't do that by myself. But working in team, they've been able to do that. Rose Park's a long ways from here. 20 minutes to get there. Those people don't want to come to church over here. And so what God did was he put it on the hearts of people to move over to that area and say, we'll take the gospel over there. About two and a half years ago, we had Steve Pearson come in here and spend a year and a half with us. He said yeah, I, just, I need to get some things worked out. God's calling us to some things but we need to have some things cleaned up it's been a year and a half with us just being a part of the body and at the end of that time he came in and said i feel like god's calling me to plant a church in eagle mountain we said okay let's do it let's do this thing and he has moved to eagle mountain and god's blessing down there he's opened opportunities they they rented a building from practically nothing and when that when that building ran out the next sunday god had another place for him it's okay we don't have to worry about it this is god's church he's more he's more concerned about it than we are amen He'll get it taken care of. So I was sitting with him the other day, and I said, what's the number one thing we can do for you, brother? And he said, I need help. I said, well, how about this? How about that? How about the other? Ooh, that one sounds kind of interesting. God is raising up a team. that We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like, how it's going to work. But what we're thankful for is that God's putting people together. And we we get to be a part of that. We're not in competition. We don't have to have a contest with somebody else. Friend, if you can preach the gospel better than we can, then knock yourself out. Let's do this thing. There's more work than any one of us can do. And what Ahimea has refused to do was listen to the counsel of those that God had placed in his life and he ends up a one-hit wonder standing on the sidelines of the history of the Bible, never to be heard from again because he refused to listen to those that God had placed around him. Aren't you thankful? for the people that God is sending to us Steve come up here want to make sure to keep Steve and what God's doing at Redemption Hill that's the one down in Eagle Mountain in front of us to be praying for them they've been in their new building all of two weeks is today your second week there that's why I wasn't here in the first service they had to help them set up because they hadn't figured out the system yet but he's doing a great job down there and God is raising a team up down there and a part of that team is Keith Radke Keith come on up here Keith and Angie, and bring your team. Bring whoever is going to come up with you. And uh, we want we want to make sure that you are introduced to these people. God has God has brought Keith and Angie to the area. Keith has been serving the Lord since he was a teenager. In 2005, helped start a church in North Carolina. In 2010, handed that church off to somebody else, and it's still going. This is a this is a good thing. There are a lot of churches that are not still going. And. Uh, since 2010 has been has been serving the lord here and just a few months ago came to us and said i feel like god's calling us to be in partnership with you guys and team with you guys and just serve the kingdom together and we've started talking about the place that they have a common vision of south valley eagle mountain Orem area keith
2: I've always wanted to stand in front of a big group of people, talking to a microphone. (laughs) Well played, good sir. (laughs) I think it all goes downhill from here, right? What, What can we do for you? How can we be praying for you? Well, before I tell you how you can be praying for us, I first want to say thank you very much to Steve Pearson. And to the team at Redemption Hill for welcoming us, our family, our families in as part of their family uh, to be a part of the work of the gospel in Eagle Mountain and Utah Valley. We look out over the valley and we say, God, this is yours. And we're excited to be a part of team with you Um, to Robert, to Donna, to Kevin, to Sean, to Jared, to the pastors here, to all of you at Risen Life. Thank you so much. For believing in us, to all of our friends from the Pleasant Grove Bible Study on Thursday nights, I'm just honored to see you here today. Thank you, and uh, just to say thanks. And uh, yeah, you can be praying for us that God shows us together how to how to do this as a team, to not not set artificial time uh, tables, to not you know jump the gun on anything, but to truly work together in prayer and in wisdom uh, with Steve and with Pastor Chris there, and, and with our team here. My wife Angie. Dax and Michaela, Alexander and Skye, their families and, and, and others are joining us, and we're just excited to be able to do this. We're praying for the Vineyard, Orem, Linden area uh, there. There's not a single church, Christian church in Vineyard, and from Pleasant Grove all the way down to Center Street on Provo on Geneva Road, there's not a Christian church either. So we're praying about that, and saying, Lord, is that where you want us, and, and is that where we should be? Um, to stay in touch with us and to know how you know what's going on, we've got some prayer cards in the back. You can take just some prayer points to be praying with us, ways to find us on the Internet, social media, and a little sign-up sheet there if you want to give us your email address. We'll put you in a list, and we'll keep you updated on what we're doing. So that's that's pretty much it, but thank you very much. Devereaux, raise your hand back there if you would, please. Devereaux is leaning on the table
0: that has prayer cards on it and a place for you to sign up to be in touch with them, check that out, find out how you can be a part of what God's doing on there. And you know, we, we don't know, they don't know just exactly what things are going to look like just yet. But what we're thankful for is a group of people who are willing to say, there's a lot of work to be done. We need help doing it. Let's team up to do this thing rather than being argumentative and irritable with one another. You go do your thing and I'm going to do mine. I'm going to do it the way I want. No, it's an attitude of it's one kingdom that's all that matters. Let's get the message out. We're so thankful for that. And what we need is people who are going to say, we're going to team with you by praying for you, praying for wisdom, for direction, clarity, to see doors that are opening and wisdom to walk through those doors at the right time in the right way. And when Joab says, this isn't the time, wisdom to be willing to say, okay, good. I'm going to listen to that also. Let's be sure and pray for these folks. Let's pray for them right now. Father, thank you so much. For what you're doing at Redemption Hill, thank you, Father, for allowing us to be a part of it. God, this is Your kingdom. We just receive this as Your good work. We receive Steve and Tricia as Your good gift. Father, we receive Keith and Angie and this team as Your good gift to Your work here. God, thank You that we get we get to see what You're doing. We get to we're allowed to be a part of it. Father, it's just it just means so much to us. Now, Father, what we want to ask is that the doors open at the right time and the right place. Wisdom to See the door, courage to go through it, as quickly and as slowly as your spirit directs. Father, we ask for wisdom for this group, wisdom for us to know how to team, partner with them to be the best blessing that we can be to them. God, we ask that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.